This message I originally gave a little over a year ago in a series that we were at that time calling Heroes of Faith. And for those of you who may not have been here with us uh, this summer or in previous summers, we have a tradition at this very non-traditional church, and that is every spring the congregation gets to vote on messages that they would like to hear again over the summer, and we call it the Best of Renaissance, and this year it's 2009, obviously. And so you all voted, and uh, perhaps it was because you wanted to hear this message again, or you thought someone else uh, might need to hear it or want to hear it, uh, bringing a friend with you, something like that. And so this series was, or the, the series was originally called uh, Heroes of Faith, and uh, Rahab is uh, one of those characters that we looked at as a hero of faith. And a hero is a person whom we admire or respect or look up to for their achievements and their noble character. And the Gallup organization, just uh, you know, 30, 40 miles away from here down in Princeton, uh, every year does a poll. It's not exactly a hero's poll, but it was the closest thing to it that I could find. It's a poll of ethics in different professions. And they ask the respondents to uh, rate the different professions that they list there as to how ethical they are. And uh, anybody want to guess what the number one most ethical profession was according to the Gallup organization? This is not church. You're allowed to speak. <laughs> any, any ideas? None? I'm sorry? Pastors. You know what? I love you too. No, we came out about fifth or so on the list. Number one was nurses. And there you go. We got some nurses here. There we go. Great for the nurses. And in fact, every year since I could find data on this, the nurses came out as number one, most ethical. Number two was pharmacists. And uh, number three was high school teachers. And we had a high school teacher in the first service and she and her husband are doing the high fives. And there were only three other professions that had a 50% or better approval rating and clergy were among them. And so Rich and I were very excited uh, by that as well. Let's go to the other end, the bottom. The number one least ethical profession was? I hear lawyers, I hear politicians. You know what? Neither of those was at the very bottom. They were about fifth or sixth from the bottom. Lowest was lobbyists. They were at the bottom. Preceded only barely by telemarketers, (laughs) car salesmen, and advertising practitioners. So very interesting there. And if any of you are in any of those industries at the bottom... This is a message I think that you're going to appreciate very much because God works in wonderful ways and he can even work powerfully in the lives of these, you know, lobbyists, etc. No, but seriously, and it's just it's just a stereotype kind of a a thing there. Not all nurses are totally ethical and not all lobbyists are totally unethical. And so, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting poll there. Um, But the woman, Rahab, who we're talking about today, her profession did not show up and has never shown up. And I can guarantee you it will never show up in Gallup's poll because people would no longer take the poll seriously if a prostitute, if prostitution were listed as one of those uh, professions there because clearly it is not uh, even remotely ethical in that way. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why in the world would we include Rahab the prostitute in a list of heroes of faith? And I think it's a question that we have to ask because there's actually more than an entire chapter in the Bible that is devoted to Rahab the prostitute. And pretty much every time she is mentioned, and she's mentioned in several chapters in the Bible, uh, she is mentioned as Rahab the prostitute. 
And uh, before we take a look at her story, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, in case you're not familiar with the history of ancient Israel. It'll help us to kind of set the scene for what's going on. Uh, Some of you may have seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, and if you have, you're familiar a little bit with this piece of of, uh, ancient history. But the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And in the year 1440 BC or thereabouts, uh, a man named Moses became the leader of Israel, and he led them out of slavery in Egypt. In a very miraculous way, they, they crossed the Red Sea, um, and they uh, worked their way across the desert, fighting some battles and, and winning in some pretty amazing ways. And uh, they ended up at the edge of a land that at that time was called Canaan. Today, we know it as Israel or Palestine, depending on Uh, which term you want to use for that part of the world. And so the Israelites are poised on the edge of Canaan, right there on on the border, and Moses, their leader, sends 12 spies to check out the land and see what it's like and report back. And so the 12 spies come back and they say, this is an incredible land. It has, it's beautiful. It's a land, you've heard the phrase, flowing with milk and honey, uh, huge fruit, you know, the, the plants, the trees, everything is big. It's a wonderful land. We would love to have it, but the people are really big too. And 10 of the spies said, there is no way. They're too big. We can't take them. It's not going to work. Two of the spies said, yeah, you know, we've got a big God. God is on our side, and he will enable us to, to win if we go in to fight these people. But the other 10 said, no. The people listened to the 10 and said, forget it. We don't trust God. You know, we don't think that he can get this done for us. And so God said, fine. You don't trust me. You don't think I can can get this done for you. Then you're going to spend the next 40 years wandering around in the backside of the desert uh, until the entire generation of the people who didn't think, who don't think that I can uh, help you to go in and take over the land until they pass away, until they die. And then I'll raise up a new generation and then uh, they'll have another opportunity. And that's where we find ourselves in the passage that we're going to be looking at. And so 40 years later, the Israelites are again poised on the edge of Canaan, and Moses has passed away, uh, and they have a new leader, and his name is Joshua. And what's interesting is that Joshua was one of the two spies who gave the good report and said, I think with God on our side, we can win this victory. So Joshua is now leading the Israelites, and let's pick up the action in a book that is named after Joshua. It's Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at that. So starting at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. So... We start off Joshua chapter 2 with a little bit of a problem. What are two good Jewish boys doing spending the night at the house of a prostitute in a story in the Bible? Not something that I would have placed there, not something that you would have placed there. Now, quick aside for, for those of you who are a little worried here. I'm half Jewish. It's okay for me to make comments like that. And uh, if you are too, we'd love, we'll talk afterwards. We'll trade some jokes back and forth. But the question is, you know, what are these two good, good Jewish boys doing staying in a house of Rahab the prostitute? 
People don't like that. In fact, if you read different commentators uh, who are giving their take on this passage, they say, well, you know, the Hebrew word that is sometimes translated prostitute could also be translated innkeeper. And that would be nice because it would make it a little bit easier if it were Rahab the innkeeper. There's a little problem with that, though, and that's that about a thousand years later, when uh, the, the Jews were beginning to lose their command of the Hebrew language, and many of them were speaking Greek, they translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, from Hebrew into Greek. And they used a Greek word to describe Rahab, and it's a word that most of you will recognize. Let me ask you this. If you talk about Rahab as Rahab the Porne, do you think she's more likely an innkeeper or a prostitute? Okay? So, the woman was clearly a prostitute. What in the world are these two guys doing spending the night at a house of a prostitute? Now, put yourself in their shoes for just a second, okay? You're going into enemy territory. You don't exactly look like the people of the land. You don't exactly dress like the people of the land. And you certainly don't sound like the people of the land. So where are you going to go when you need a place to hide? Well, you go to a place where there are men going in day and night. They're going and coming, and everybody kind of just looks the other way. They're figuring, hopefully we're not going to be noticed if we go to this woman's house. Furthermore, it's on the city wall, so they can escape if they need to quickly. It's high up, so they can look out over the city. It's an ideal place to spy the city from. And you know what? Life is messy, you know? And, and, and one of the things, as Steve mentioned, that is really nice, which is really cool about the Bible, is the Bible deals with real life, and it deals with messy people and messy situations, and this is one of them. And so they camped, they spent the night at uh, Rahab the prostitute's house. Let's pick it up again in uh, verse 2. Now, they were hoping that they wouldn't be noticed, but notice what happens here. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know where, which way they went. Go after them quickly. Maybe you'll be able to catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flask that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, which was a major river in that area. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So put yourself in Rahab's position here for a minute. These two guys have come to you. Uh, They clearly need protection. So she's hidden them upstairs. But the king's men show up and they say, bring the two men out. We know that they came there. She's got a choice. She can turn the guys over, turn the two Israelite spies over to the king's men, and she'll be a hero in her people. And she will, you know, maybe she's no longer going to be known as Rahab the prostitute. She's going to be known as Rahab the hero, the one that saved us from uh, this army that was coming up. Or, at risk of her own life, she can lie and she can protect the spies. And that's what she chose to do. And and you got to ask yourself, what in the world was this woman thinking? She could lose her life over this. Why would she risk her life to protect two enemy spies? Why, why would she want to do that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, 
she went up to the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how you dried up the water of the Red Sea, uh, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and we, we mentioned that with Moses, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And the Amorites were enemies of the Canaanites, very fierce people, and the Israelites completely destroyed them. And verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Did you catch that last line? For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. What she is saying is that, and she uses the Hebrew word Yahweh, or we may have heard it translated as Jehovah. She's saying that your God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. And she's from a people, the Canaanites, who worship other gods. Their God is called Baal, and she worships Baal. But she says, I know that your God, and she doesn't just use the generic word for God, she uses the Hebrew word for the God that they worship. I know that your God, Yahweh or Jehovah, he is the true God and not ours. She's saying, I'm going to align myself. I, a Canaanite, I'm going to align myself with the God of Israel because I have seen what your God has done. I've seen what your God has done for you and I want to be part of that because I trust him, not our gods. She was, she was willing to entrust her life to these two spies and to their God. And so then in the, interv- in, in the next few verses, she just says, the only thing I'm asking you The only thing I'm asking you is that when you come in and you take over, please protect me and my family. Spare us. I know you're going to destroy the whole city. Just spare me and my family. And so then let's drop down uh, to verse 15 and see what happens there. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. So she says, protect me, I'll save you. She lets him down by, you know, this escape ladder that she just happened to have there, maybe because other guys needed to escape at, at various times. So they go out through the wall, they go up to the hills, and they hide there, and we pick up the action then again in verse 22. And when they left, they went into the hills, they stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, they forded the river and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And then they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. How did they know that? Because Rahab had told them that. And think about, think about it. That was the 
key piece of strategic information that the Israelites needed. See, when you're, when you're an army that is trying to defend yourself against an attacking army, you don't want to let on that you're afraid. You want to make yourself look bigger than you are. You want to make yourself look more powerful than you are. You want them to think that you've got more men and more weapons than you really have. And you certainly don't want people to know you're afraid because if they know you're afraid, it's over. They're going to be more confident and more courageous to come in and defeat you. And she said... Our people are scared out of their sandals. They are, you know, they're going to melt before you when you come in here. And think of the irony of this, of this situation. Forty years before, before uh, this particular scene, you had the same scene going on. The Israelites are poised right on the edge of Canaan. They're ready to go in. And what happened? They were too afraid. They were afraid of the Canaanites. So they didn't go in and they wandered around for 40 years. 40 years later, they come back. They're poised right on the edge of Canaan. They're ready to go in. And what happens? The Canaanites are too afraid. And so the Israelites are able to go in and conquer them. So the fear has shifted from Israel to Canaan and the outcome is totally different. And the Israelites are able to go in. They're able to destroy the city of Jericho and take over And that begins their conquest of the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. And Joshua chapter 6 records what happened when the Israelites went in, and it gives the details there. And and I'd encourage you to read that. You can see some of the wonderful, miraculous things uh, that God had done in order to get them in there. But where I want to pick up in Joshua chapter 6 is with what ended up happening to Rahab. You know, what happened to her when the Israelites came in. So verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. God rewarded Rahab's faith. She said, I trust you. I'm putting my life in your hands and God rewarded that. He blessed her and he spared her and her family. And here we are more than 3,400 years later and we're talking about Rahab the prostitute. And we're talking about her as a hero of faith. We don't know the name of the king of Jericho. We don't know the names of any of the other people from that, from that period of time there uh, in, in Canaan. But we do know the name of Rahab the prostitute. Why? Because she trusted God and she acted on her faith in God and God blessed her. So you ask, you know, why is she a hero? And at, at, at one level, and I think this is, this is key, it's because she trusted God and she acted on her faith and that made a difference and that enabled uh, Israel to go in and conquer the land. She trusted God and she showed it uh, by hiding the spies. And uh, Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. It's written by a Jew who became a follower of Jesus 
and he wrote it to other Jews who had become followers of Jesus. And in the 11th chapter of that book, he gives a list of different Jewish people who had faith in God. And it's sort of, it's, you know, we often refer to it as something like faith's hall of fame, something like that in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's mostly men who are listed there, uh, but one of the people who's listed there is a woman and her name is Rahab, verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. True faith, the kind of faith that Rahab had, is, is true faith is looking at God and saying, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you can do what you've promised to do, and I'm going to align myself with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust in you. And I'm going to act on it. And that's exactly what Rahab did. And I think that's why she's a a great example of faith for us. But we still have a problem. You know, we we can say, yeah, she's a woman of faith. Okay, fair enough. But the woman is still a prostitute. Doesn't God have any ethical standards? You know, and you think about so how often... We focus on things like the woman's a prostitute. Yeah, she believes in, in, in God. Okay, fine, but she's a prostitute. And you, you come to church and you feel you know, condemned, etc. But that doesn't seem to fit with what's going on here. Now, God certainly wasn't pleased with, with Rahab's profession. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, he clearly condemns prostitution and a whole bunch of other things. But God is a God of grace and he's a God of forgiveness and he loves us, loves us even when we don't deserve it. You see, God, was, God wasn't focusing on her profession. He was focusing on her heart. He was looking beyond what she did for a living to see where her heart was and that's what counts in God's eyes. That's what counts in God's kingdom. You don't have to clean up your act in order to come to God. Rahab didn't have to renounce prostitution in order to, uh, to be a believer in Jehovah, to be a believer in God. Um, you come to God, you believe in him, and then he begins to work to clean up your act, kind of like Julie was talking about, uh, singing about in that song. Uh, God puts it this way in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel as he was looking at, at one who might have been king. Samuel was a prophet and he was about to anoint a king. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This was a guy who looked really good. This is the guy who looked like he should have been king. And, and God says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance But God looks at the heart. We see a prostitute. God sees a woman of faith whom he's restoring to look like how he created her to be. He sees a tarnished painting that he's working to clean up, that he's proud to hang on his wall and call beautiful anyway. And that's what God is, is in the business of doing. Some of us can relate to Rahab. <clears throat> we, feel, you know, we feel ashamed of who we are or what we've done. And God says, I love you. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of forgiveness. I love you. Just trust in me. Come to me. Other of us, of us 
put ourselves more like the nurses, you know, and, and we're not on the prostitute end of things. We're on the nurses end of things. You know, we're pretty good. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say, you know what? I'm flawed too. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I hurt the people I love. Sometimes I do things I know I shouldn't do. I don't live up to my own standards for right and wrong. I, I don't live up to God's standards. I'm not perfect. I may not be Rahab, but I'm not perfect either. And God says to all of us, I love you, I'm a God of grace, I'm a God of forgiveness, and I care more about your heart than anything else. I want, I want you to be my child just as much as anybody else. About 30 years after Jesus died, uh, different people began to write biographies of Jesus' life. And one of those was a man named Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples or one of his followers, and he had spent a lot of time with Jesus. So he began to write a biography of Jesus. And many of the biographies of that day would start off with a genealogy or a list of ancestors. And because it was a patriarchal society, most of the people, almost exclusively in every genealogy that we have, the people who are listed are men. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so, who became the father of so-and-so, who became the father, you know, and all the way down. And then in this particular case, the last person listed would be Jesus. And it shows who Jesus' ancestors are. Well, something that's unusual about Matthew's genealogy is that there are actually five women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. And one of those five is Rahab, the prostitute. What in the world is Rahab the prostitute doing in the genealogy of Jesus? I mean, isn't God, wasn't God able to work it out so that one of Jesus' ancestors was not a prostitute? I mean, think about it. You know, you've got that uncle who kind of like, you know, you want everybody to forget, you know, and you kind of shove him off over on the side, okay? So what in the world is one of Jesus' ancestors doing as being a prostitute. And then, hello, you know, if I were writing the thing, I'm not going to celebrate the fact that one of Jesus' ancestors is a prostitute. I'm going to, you know, okay, it was there, but let's kind of cover it over because it's embarrassing and we don't want to know this, you know, and it's, it, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so as I, I was chewing on this, and I said, so why would Matthew include Rahab in the list? And I said, okay, obviously it's not... It's in spite of the fact that she's a prostitute. It's because of her faith. It's because she trusted in God and she acted on that and it made a huge difference. And so, okay, fine. It's in spite of the fact that she's a prostitute. But as I chewed on it a little more, I don't think it's in spite of the fact that she's a prostitute. I think it's because of the fact that she's a prostitute. Jesus identified with the people that he came to rescue. And Rahab was one of those people. Jesus identified with the fallen, broken people. He didn't come to condemn, he came to rescue. And he says, you know what? I'm proud to have Rahab in my family because I love her. Yeah, you look at her, I look at her, and we see a prostitute. I look at her, God looks at her. God is saying, I look at her and I don't see a prostitute. I see a woman who needs me and whom I love and whom I came to die for, whom I came to rescue, whom I came to make part of my family. And so you may be embarrassed by the fact that she's in my genealogy. I'm proud of the fact that she's in my genealogy. Nobody 
Nobody, whether it's Rahab or me or you, whomever it may be, nobody is beyond the reach of God's love. God is in the business of, of, of fixing up broken people, of cleaning up messy people, of restoring tarnished paintings to their original beauty. That's what God is doing. And God included Rahab in Jesus' genealogy, I think, to remind us that he's a God of love, he's a God of grace, he's a God of forgiveness, and he's a God who blesses those who have faith in him. He included Rahab in his genealogy so that all of us, wherever we are, wherever we are in our lives, can look at her and say, you know what? If, if God can welcome her into his family, he can welcome me into his family too. And all we have to do is, is like him, like, like Rahab did, turn to him and say, okay, I trust you and I'm gonna align myself with you. I'm gonna follow after you. And God says, great, welcome to the family and man, I'm gonna bless you in ways that you can't ever imagine because none of us are beyond the reach of God's love because his love is infinite and his grace and his forgiveness are powerful. Let me pray for us. Father, what a powerful story this is here. One that, well, we might not have included if if we were the ones putting together the Bible. You did include because it teaches us something about you uh, that we might miss otherwise. Thanks for your your love and your grace and the forgiveness uh, that you showed to Rahab and thanks that that we can experience that as well. Thank you for her faith, for that example of uh, a faith that was willing to uh, risk her life uh, to align herself with you. And Father, I pray for each of us that as we see who you are, as we see how amazing you are, how powerful you are, how loving you are, how gracious you are, I pray that like Rahab, we would be drawn to you, that you would work in our hearts, that we might see you as you are and we might follow after you in the same way that Rahab did. Thanks, Father, for your love and for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.